And what we're talking about today is under the word charged, which is the state of our current affairs in the U.S. when it comes to politics, when it comes to partisanship, when it comes to a position on anything that we have an idea about, it feels so much more charged than ever. And the question is, well, what role does church have in telling me what to think? This isn't that. This will not be a place where you come out hopefully thinking, oh yeah, I'm right red or I'm uh, strong liberal, all the above. (laughs) This is more about, okay, contextualizing. What is our calling as believers and how do we engage culture? And what does it mean to be the church in the state? And what does it mean for me to understand the complexities of what's going on in the world around us? So I want to say, today we're going to be talking a little bit more about the context, the history, why we are where we are in the United States, what our governmental structure is, why it's that way. A little bit more of a history lesson. I want to say, you guys, I'm not a historian. I love history. I I want to believe I'm a student of history. But what I'm going to say is probably 80% accurate. And the challenge to you is I want it to be 100% accurate, right? It's not like I'm trying to leave stuff out. But I just, there's a lot that I just don't get. What I would encourage you is in the conversation today, it's not about taking what I say as gospel. It's about owning the concepts and finding out for yourself. Most people don't dive into what it takes to really understand the depths of a concept. We apply our, our perspective on historical truth and, and have this revisionist capacity to, to make it say what we want it to. Hopefully the ends of this all will be us moving forward with a greater sense of unity and instilled, restored purpose in who we are called to be in this United States of America as believers. You have to want to learn. I have to want to learn. There's easy answers. There's very, very hard solutions. We all want easy answers. Solutions are tougher. Allow yourself to pursue a solution. And that means we've got to choose to engage thoughts that are different than ours and seek to understand why they are. What does the Bible say, however, about government? I'm just going to read some different pockets. Romans 13 is a really good chapter, but 13.1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, and those that exist have been instituted by him. 1 Peter 2.13 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor or supreme. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. 1 Timothy 2, pray and intercede for kings and all who are in high position. I don't do that well. I don't care what your take is on Donald Trump. Our charter as believers is to pray for him. Our charter as believers is to pray for Bernie Sanders if you hate his position. I don't care what it is. We quit preaching and started meddling now. Okay, so John 18, 36 says, Jesus answered, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, but my kingdom is not of this world. By definition, I would think almost all of us are Americans, but that's not our first and foremost citizenship. Our kingdom is not of this world. Our kingdom is of heaven. Our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities of this dark age. So this is where we kind of come in centered on America. And the question is, is America a Christian nation? Again, all this stuff I believe is historically based. I've done a lot of research. I've read and listened to a lot of stuff. But there's probably somebody here who could say, ah, that's wrong. If you see me messing up, please let me know. But this is my best understanding of approximation of who we are, where we are, and why we are here in the American position right now. Are we a Christian nation? America was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. But strictly speaking, I think there's, from the right side, been a substantial revisionist narrative that you had all these pious forefathers who were godly evangelical Christians who went out and, you know, because of Jesus' blood, you know, set up the American free democracy. For the most part, that's not the reality of what we see. A majority of the founding fathers were probably deists, which means that they were believing in God, but they're more pragmatic in their application of religion. 
that religion was kind of viewed as an expediency. It's a way to control and, and, and empower people rather than some sort of spiritual, you know, charter from God. You had a lot of Unitarians, you had a lot of Episcopalians, people more orthodoxy, and you can go back and evaluate. In fact, the only person who, of the founding fathers, who would be considered an evangelical Christian in the terms that we understand it was Patrick Henry the Order. There's not a whole bunch of people who the reason they founded America was because they wanted Jesus Christ lifted up. Really, it was in speaking against the oppression of freedom of religion and freedom of prerogative. And so the question then we look at is, what types of different governments are there? So there's, there's, there's a whole slew, but we'll just hit on the, the main ones. There's a theocracy. A theocracy means that it is ruled by God. The old Jewish Hebrew state was a theocracy until Saul came in and then became an aristocracy. There's no theocracy right now. We, we are not in a theocratic state. God is not king in America. That starts to add into our complexity that though you might have a heartfelt position about the nature of God and his purposes, we're not necessarily as a democratic republic led by God. We're not an aristocracy either. We're also that you have an autocracy, right, or a dictatorship. You've got an oligarchy and a democracy. And again, these are a little bit more all over the place. So an oligarchy means that a small number of people rule. Plutocracy, or depending on it, means like the rich people rule. But an oligarchy, actually, if you go look at Aristotle and you look at Plato and those guys, they actually valued an oligarchy over a democracy. And we think, well, wait a minute. The, the foundations of American democracy are based on the thought processes of these guys. One of the reasons that they valued oligarchies was because in its purest form, democracy is mob rule. We actually say we want democracy. We really don't want democracy. And think of it in these terms. And I don't want to bash on California. But California, let's say, is, is probably as unique as a state of any of the other ones. So let's just say that of 400 million people in the U.S., you had 201 million people that were based in California and 199 million based elsewhere. Well, the reality is, if those people on a slight edge decision make something that's universally beneficial for everything that they hold dear, you could emasculate the, the choices of the heartland of the people who are generating food, who are generating energy, who are generating all these other things. We're not a democracy, and that's one of the reasons that there was a value behind an oligarchy, because an oligarchy basically means that the people are in power make the decisions. Now, that seems really fundamentally tough to us, but in their estimation, the people who are of privilege are also the ones who have education, who also have context, who also have perspective, who also have the ability to evaluate this information and make decisions based best for the people around them. You guys with me on that, right? Now, I don't believe in oligarchy, but what I want to do is give us some thoughtful process back into the context of where we come from. We, has anybody heard about the, the three-fifths, the three-fifths consensus? So black people in the U.S. that historically they were given three-fifths of a presence of being in the U.S. In our current sensibilities, us looking at that, it doesn't make sense. Understanding where that started was in 1787, you basically had 40% of the population in the South was black slaves. And then you had the North that had a substantially less number of, of black people in it. Interestingly enough, even though that three-fifths thought process of a black person seems to be on purpose of belittling the power of the black people, what it was, was the northern states wanted to have black people count as nothing. And the southern states wanted to have black people count as one full person. Why? Because with regards to congressional allotments, with regards to electoral college, and so basically there's a 30% increase of prerogative given to the southern states if they were given full one person allocation per slave. And what you saw happen is in 1787, 
there was a push back in the Senate and in the Congress to say, no, in the North, we want them to only count as three quarters because that gives some power and sway to the North when people who are black underrepresented in the, in the South would have perpetuated slavery. 1787, this three-fifths vote came in, this compromise came in. In 1789, two years later, the Constitution was ratified. The Constitution would not have been ratified if that had not taken place. And in 1808, you had this enactment of a policy that disallowed slavery to continue to bring, you can't bring slaves into America anymore if their slaves are gonna be homegrown. The crazy thing is that three-fifths allocation would not have passed because the power would have been in the hands of the southern states if that three-fifths allocation wasn't there. So we're sitting here with our 2018 sensibility saying, oh my gosh, three-fifths compromise, I can't believe, that's horrible. It is. But I want to give us grace. There's a context to where we are and why we are here. And the deeper we understand the thought process behind it, the more it allows us to say, oh, I can see the trickle effect of why we ended up where we are and what it takes to now effectively assess how we move forward with the solution given our current standings. So I want you to hear, I'm not espousing three-fifths that black people only get three-fifths vote. I just want us to understand that there's a context behind what's going on here. Can you break that down a little sure. bit more? Yeah. So basically... You have the house, your electoral college and also the seats that you have in the House giving you prerogative over decision-making. If we rule on anything, we've got this many more seats in the House. And the seats in the House, not in the Senate, but in the House, are determined by the number of people you're representing in your population. If we allocate that you have a million people in Georgia, well, if 200,000 of those are black people, you have more seats in your House to be able to make decisions that the people in Georgia want to make pro-slavery. Again, I'm not trying to say that that's good, bad, or indifferent. I'm just trying to say this is us. I want, I want to pull us into the reality of where we are today. So the speed with which we have developed in the last 100 and now 18 years. So infant mortality rates. In, in 1900, the infant mortality rate was 1 in 10. Basically, out of 1,000 births, 100 would die before the age of 1. That The mother mortality rate is about 9 to 10 out of 1,000, okay? So around 1%. And you started to see this concerted effort. Where in the heck am I going with this, right? Somebody saying, what in the world? You have to understand what the process of the agrarian society coming up into that point was, that how you had slaves was children. Children did your free labor for you, like the way that you would have your kids go and pick the harvest. Our social security network was established by having a bunch of children who, in my old age, could each give one-tenth of their wealth to take care of us. So my grandpa came from a family if he was one of 10, my grandma was one of 10. And basically that was the system of social security. As you had reliable, affordable, effective birth control start to hit back in the 50s and 60s. Is that bad? No, I'm not going to take a state as like a Roman Catholic. I, I believe in birth control, right? Thank God for me personally. <laughs> but what you now had was the ability for one, women to go into the workplace and not have to worry about just taking trifling jobs here or there, but actually create careers because they're able to plan. You also had this sudden, past the baby boom, what happens? You certainly have this contraction of birth. You start to have this place where the transference of opportunity goes to women because their ability to control pregnancy. And also you have the ability of the need, I guess I'd say, for some function of extra family to step in and provide social care for those older people and you had longevity people are starting to live instead of the expectancies in the 60s and 70s you're talking people living to the 90s now us we're looking at my my mom-in-law 
and it's just us and it's her and she's going to live as she lives from 75 to 90 we're having to take care of that it used to be spread out across right so to give you guys an understanding of the distinction the rate of speed with which we have changed in culture if you look at the, the army that was fielded in world war one at the beginning of world war one by the french had more in common with alexander the great's army of 300 bc than it did with the world war ii army that the french yielded the tactics the processes the horses it had more in common with an army of 2,000 years ago than it did with one of 20 years later. That's the rate of change with which we're having to adapt our cultural sensibilities. And that's why I want to say, give us some grace. Give each other some grace. We're trying to figure this out. We have to realize the complexity of where we sit today and that it's not as always a one plus one equals two. Our revisionist sensibilities want to see some sort of historical activity and paint it through our own lenses as opposed to learning from it. And so when we look back, when we understand contextualizing history and what it means to us, it's not something that we leverage to prove a point. It's something that we learn from to prevent a problem. I do want to say this isn't the most divided we've ever been. It feels divided. Abraham Lincoln has a thing or two to say about that. It's not irreparable. What's going on in the U.S. is not irreparable. But we have to make a choice to choose to engage the gray with grace, okay? I think one of the realities is, is so much at stake, so much is at stake that expediency justifies activity. We say it's too tough for me to engage in a thoughtful, cohesive, researched dialogue, evaluating solutions. It's much easier for me to flash an answer and then to assault people because their answer is different from mine. It's just expedient. And so much is at stake, it's easier for me to flip a switch and pin somebody into a corner and try to leverage other people's opinions <coughs> against that. And what I want to say is, there is, this is my understanding, there's not been one specific flip switch moment where it all went over, but we used to vote on people. And now, candidly, we're voting on kind of policies. And I want to give each other grace. So right now, if somebody voted for Hillary Clinton, it's not necessarily that they thought that Hillary Clinton was the embodiment of Jesus, the second coming. <laughs> but because there were some policies and some components to that, that they said, Donald Trump doesn't do that. Nobody else is out here. I need to vote for her. Vice versa. Same with Donald Trump. Somebody looks at people and say, well, how could you vote for Donald? Look at what he is. I know that there's a substantial number of people who are looking at the current state and saying, there is nothing about that that I am pro. And yet, given my options, that's who I felt like I needed to vote for because of the idea behind them. Give each other grace in this, right? Allow ourselves to be measured and have that conversation about it because we're whiplashing right now. We're getting into these hysterical positions. We're getting into ultimatums and it's not healthy. This is a question that's not going to have an answer for me to you, but you need to think about it. Is it possible to hold a personal conviction and not want to have it, have a directive about that position mandated by the state? Is it possible to not be pro, what, abortion personally, and yet be thoughtful about how non-pro-abortion legislation is enacted? Fill in anything, right? I don't care what it is, freedom of speech, whatever else. And I'd say, so there's a, there's a thought process. You typically have right, you have left, 
typically that's kind of more liberal on the left and conservative on the right, but then you also kind of have a more of a libertarian, which is the laissez-faire, hey, leave us alone. It's going to self-regulate. And the libertarian mindset is, hey, you can wave your arm around as much as you want until you hit somebody's nose. And then at that moment, there's a breach in social contract. The question and what we're talking about here is how much do we want the mundane, the important interactions even dictated by government as opposed to walk in freedom and allow our social construct to even out the playing field as opposed to directed by government. Because here's the thing. I grew up in communist China. I spent a lot of time in, in uh, Muslim-controlled uh, Sudan, uh, some in Lebanon, Syria. I, I spent some time in a uh, benevolent dictatorship in Singapore. Winston Churchill said, the Democratic Republic process that we have is the worst, except for all other processes out there. Interesting. So it's, it's important to understand where we're going with action versus speech versus thought. So historically, we talked about uh, libertarian. You could define action as right or wrong, and that's kind of been the basis of what you do, what you sow, you will reap, and we can enact federal uh, <coughs> rules, laws, state laws, et cetera, on that. There has begun to be a push against speech. So there's a distinction between action and speech. And so we know the First Amendment protects freedom of speech, and, and we often conflate separation of church and state, all these things. I just want to read what the First Amendment says. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and petition the government for a redress of grievances. Basically, you can't have a law disallowing you to speak freely. And there was no extra clarity on that until the Supreme Court case in 1942 that came up and basically the ruling in the Supreme Court case in 1942 said, the only disallowance of free speech is if you directly cause injury to someone, like say, hey, shoot her, kill her, injury or bodily harm to somebody else. And that was the only <clears throat> distinction that was ever made in the Supreme Court up to that time of allowing what freedom of speech limitations could be. And actually since then, there's been six cases and we backtracked up to a case in 2017 because there's been such a push to put criminalization on speech as opposed to action. And in fact, last year, it was never an overturn of that, that, that 42 ruling, but basically the, the statement is there is neither campus officials or students have any legal grounds for preventing or disrupting speech because they say it has fighting words or it could be offensive to listeners. And so what's interesting, this seems like a right-wing, left-wing conversation. I feel like this is just a where we are. China, China's in a mess right now. And, and go read up on what, some of the social structure that's happening in China. And thought police, speech police gets really dangerous. And right now, there's a thought process in place that speech can now, since it offends people, merit violence physically in return. Because I say something that you don't agree with, and it could be offensive to somebody that I feel like is, a, is underprivileged or underrepresented. Not only can I react with physical retaliation, I can preemptively engage forethought with physical stopping you from doing that. You guys start to see how scary this becomes if we as a culture can engage people's thoughts which is where we moved, action, speech, thoughts, and that's getting to the microaggressions. That, well, I think you thought that, therefore, 
there are senators who have gone on record that says it is our duty to proactively <clears throat> physically assail people who have who speak offensive thoughts and that's one of the most important things that we can hold dear in the states is freedom of speech is freedom for me to be offended if you're not okay with being offended you're not okay with what it means to truly be American because if we can't be offended then we don't have somebody giving us the yin to our yang we don't have somebody giving us perspective to our position if you look at the American process and where we are and the legislative body and the Constitution the longer you spend time looking at it and I'm not gonna pretend I'm some constitutional scholar it's a brilliant document it's brilliant for how it perceives what could be the totalitarian state of where we could go and, and it puts some very specific things that tether us to a grounded reality that at least we're all on the same playing field one of the largest marches and this isn't right or left in my opinion one of the most important things I don't care let's just say with the appointment of Supreme Court this is my take I don't care so much that somebody's right or left I care more that somebody is constitutional as opposed to not because it's, 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 it's like we're untethered if you don't have a tie to what is it that makes us American. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. If you don't have that as your dictum, as your defining ground stone, and it becomes subjective, well, that was important to them back then, but it's not to us. We get in a dicey situation quick. I'm going to get back into, again, this is a Taoist idea, and I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time on it, but the yin and the yang, okay? And so... Who would have thought that in church you're talking about yin and yang? Really, there's some corollaries to the Christian faith. But basically, the yin and the yang, the yin is dark and the yang is light. Now, it's easy for us to think in terms of bad or good. But basically, the thought process is that we in culture exist in this state of healthy tension, that the two are inseparable and inextricable of each other. So historically, the yin is a darker. It means that which is covered or hidden that which is mysterious. The yang is the known, the ordered, the understood. Historically, women, this is gonna be great. Historically, women are connected to the yin, the dark, the mysterious, the unknown, not the evil, just so you guys know. And men are correlated with the order, the logical, the known. Um, and, and candidly, if you, if you play in large stereotypes, it's kind of pretty standard fare, right? What's interesting is, if you look on the edges of this, if you look at this as a continuum, on the far side of the yin, you have anarchy. No rules, nothing matters. On the far side of the yang, you've got tyranny, okay? How many of you guys want anarchy? Not a lot. How many of you guys want tyranny? <clears throat> Most of us don't. So the issue means what? That there is a healthy tension of what it takes to hold both and value the sacredness of both. And then the question comes in, simply, easy, this going that direction is left. And I'm not saying liberal and conservative, I'm saying left and right. This going that direction is conservative. Somebody would say, well, wait a minute, obviously conservative is good. Yes, conservative is great. Can you have chaos without order? Not a chance. You won't have anything productive. But the further you get, the more problematic we get to. Because you have tyranny that breaks into the process. And so, uh, I'm talking broad general terms, but strictly speaking, eight times out of ten, 
This isn't good, bad, or indifferent. I feel like it's just kind of self-evident. Most left-leaning arguments are going to be based on how we feel. That doesn't feel right. That feels like it's an injustice. That feels wrong. Most right-leaning arguments are more quantitative, enumerated. Well, this is what X means. This is what Y means. That's what Z means. And so somebody would say, which is better? Both truths have to be sacred. Let's talk about, I definitely don't want to get into this. <laughs> but let's go. No, so, so the Kavanaugh, Blasey Ford hearing, right? So we're not going to, I'm not going to ask you guys any thoughts on this. But here's the thing. You have a woman here who has a, a, a it's an experience. But she has a reality, we'll say. Mm-hmm. He, she exists within. That put your daughter in that position, it's over with. Right? Let's go to the flip side. Kavanaugh. Put my son in a position of where you have this thought process of where possibly, in today's culture, what could be an acquisition. Take this scenario out of it. But you take a scenario where an accuser accuses, and this person has to live with the unsubstantiated consequences. I'm not saying they're substantiated or not, but the possibility for this is a prototype. That's a really scary position to be in. And I believe the right place is to hold both sacred. We're all, we've all got stories. We've all got brokenness. It doesn't invalidate anybody's stories. What it does is validate the need to understand the emotion that somebody carries from that story. Okay? So be gracious. Even if you don't agree with somebody, if you don't believe somebody, at least hold their perspective and context sacred. Is it possible that she's a, a left-wing shill who's just coming in? The story is, is that we have to hold her reality sacred because she is representative of who we as a culture need to move away mm-hmm. from. We can't. And here's another thing. We're trying to apply godly principles on people who are ungodded. There's not Jesus, the hope of salvation for 95, 98% of the people that engage their reality. The conversation with her is go find Jesus, theophastic understanding who you are. She doesn't, maybe she does, but the majority of people don't have that as their starting point for a solution. So we have to deal with some of the principled pragmatism that says, okay, you don't get Jesus, you don't get the Holy Spirit, you don't get the redemption of the cross. What does it mean to just engage your reality and move forward into healing and wholeness to where we as a culture can deal with sexual abuse? On the right side, same with him. He could be lying, he could be just bald-faced lying, screaming, angry, white, whatever. But we also have to take the reality of the prototype that he is or, or the, the person that he is and realize, okay, how do we in a culture that engages these evil truths make sure that they're judiciously applied in a way that's not reactive and deal with our decisions in a way that's a little bit more calculated and process-based than it is emotional? Y'all feel like this is easy for me to get up here and talk about? It's not. But, but if I'm way off, let me know. I, I really am okay. I want to learn. So here's, here's the thought process. We already had experiments in extremism. In the 1900s, we had an experiment with the right-wing, right-wing extremists, which was the Nazi Germany. And in fact, the numbers are, during the Nazi regime, about 17 million people were murdered because of Nazi ideologies. Not a lot of people think about the fact that we had an example or a, a test tube experiment on the far left side, which was the Soviet Union. And Stalinistic Russia, the reason we don't hear about this is because they were an ally, or maybe there's just, we're just too, there's too many Netflix shows to think about this. There was over, numbers say that over 60 million people were killed in Stalinistic Russia. 
based on murdered based on ideologies. 55 million of those were their own people. That means one out of 200 people were murdered because they didn't hit the party line. We've already had the experiment. It doesn't work on either side. So for that, that longing within us to disengage and screw them and they're not me, guess what? We're all on the same lifeboat. If you start to saw down the middle and burn it, you both lose. There's one last kind of little thought here. There is a, there's a narrative out there that there is a hierarchy and that there's a patriarchy and that it exists because of capitalism. And in my mind, I think that there probably is a hierarchy out there. I think there's a place of where what is now being espoused is, hey, capitalism has created this place of where the rich get richer and the poor get poor and it puts them <coughs> down. What's interesting is just, just so you guys get it all out there, me being fully disclosure, that's something called the Pareto Principle. It's something that's observed in nature. It's called the 80-20 rule. It's called the rich get richer rule. This is something that if you look at stars, you look at trees, you look at peas, the way that 80% of the productivity is defined by 20% of the material component parts. You look at our world today. This was true in Solomonic Russia. So it doesn't matter about the social structure. It doesn't matter about the capitalist, democratic, whatever it is. There is a place of where the top 20% get 80% of the goodies. And we actively participate in it. Because you use Amazon today or this week, didn't you? You used Walmart sometime this week. You used Apple. How come you don't use June? How come you don't use, you know, some other online marketplace? Well, because it just, Amazon makes it easier. And then you have this problem <clears throat> where you can, okay, the tyranny starts to happen as you start to aggregate all these. Now Amazon becomes so big, it gobbles up all its competitors and suddenly it commands the market. I'm not talking about that. But there's this reality that we are engaging that it's always gonna be inequitable. Jesus said, the poor you have with you always, there's never gonna be a place of where we've got this one single solution. Like, oh. Why didn't we think about that? The problem is, no matter what the infrastructure, there's always going to be people who somehow, be it by coincidence, the place that they're born into, the uh, time and, and opportunity, they shoot up, and 80% of the other people don't. So the question is, is that something that we're okay with? And we're just like, oh, it's just is what it is. I think, again, it's back to a center place. The center place is fighting that reality is fighting nature itself, Right? There's just a natural way that things will play out, but it also is important to us to do that in a way that pursues an equality of opportunity for everybody. We can never dictate the equality of, of outcome. When you start to dictate the equality of outcome, that everybody has to have the exact same outcome, not the exact same opportunity. You guys understand the distinction between the two, right? We have to make it our charter, whatever we can do to make sure people have the same opportunity. So we should have compassion on people. We should always be striving not to make the rich richer, but realize, hey, there's candidly, there's just a place of where all of us end up using Amazon. That's because it's easy, it's intuitive. Well, they get more money, suddenly they have more money to reinvest back in to make it more intuitive, more easy, more refined. There's, there's a positive side to capitalism. So right now in the US, 40% of all medical innovations are made in the United States. Just United States alone, and that's every other single country is left out of it. Basically, it's a five to one ratio of new drug innovations that are done in America as opposed to the second closest is, 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 is London, is England. And somebody says, well, wow, look at us. Well, anybody know the reason why? Because our drugs cost three and a half times more on average than every other country. And so people who want to make a profit put their efforts towards where that profit can be made. 
And this is the brokenness of humanity. And I sit here and I say, that doesn't seem like godly. And we're going to talk about the church's engagement in the world, right? But if you're talking about people who are unchurched, ungodly, what's their, what's their motive? Money. Okay, great. The best doctors typically live here because of the type of compensation they make. The most innovations are made here. I hate it. There is a, there's a new muscular disc, dystrophy medicine that just came on the market. You know how much it costs for one year's worth of doses for a kid? 300000 bucks. Oh, is that right? I don't think so. So does there need to be some sort of kind of counterbalancing back to that? Yeah, how does that work? Is it government legislated? Is it capitalist? Uh, it, it's a tough answer, but I know one of the things is, is well, so we even look at Scandinavian countries. This is the last thought before we wrap towards home. Look at Scandinavian countries. They're held in such ordered esteem of, oh, look what they're doing and how they're able to do it. One of the things is our, our defense budget right now in the U.S. is 20%, $640 billion, 20% of our total GDP is in the defense budget. Scandinavia, Denmark, Norway. The only one that spends the most out of all those is 1.6% is Norway. Everybody else is 1% or less. If you talk about social systems that you could put money back towards what we call entitlements, there's a heck of a lot of money that we're putting towards budget and defense that could be reinvested back towards other social security systems, et cetera, right? You know why those countries spend 1%? Because they got us. Literally, you had the annexation of Crimea and Russia. You know who stood up to them was the Americans. And so we're sitting here saying, well, how come we're spending all this? I'm not saying it's easy, and I think we need to trim the budget. I think we need to be very, very judicious. Principled pragmatism. But it's not some sort of easy answer, right? There's not a place where you can just flip a switch. Well, look at all those countries. Yeah, there's a lot more other intricacies to it. How do we navigate this with each other and give each other the benefit of the doubt? Because the single thing that unifies people is a foe. And this is, where I, this is where I finish here. The single greatest, I remember I went and spent the summer in, um, in New Guinea. And I mean like legit New Guinea. I mean like naked people in bows, right? I mean, I'm not being a joke in this, naked people in bows. And they had the Lani, the Dani, the Koteka, the, all these different tribes that were historically cannibalistic. They said that everybody who was over 40 had tasted human flesh. And they were historically at each other's throats the whole time. But when I got there, it was one of the most amazing stories of my life. They had a freedom rally where they had, they killed over 200 pigs, slaughtered them in this huge valley there, sun setting. It was, it was unbelievable. All these tribes represented for the common cause of creating independence from the Indonesian government. Nothing unifies disenfranchised people like a common goal or a common enemy. And what is our common enemy? The ripping apart of the American fabric of what it means to be us. That has to be what stops. What creates commonality between me and somebody on a completely different political, emotional, spiritual take than me? The commonality is that we have to work towards solving this lifeboat dilemma as opposed to throwing fuel onto the fire and believing that it affects them worse than it affects us. So, practical takeaway. Grace, realize that the person that you encounter who has a different position has a context. And that all, not all positions, because some positions are just asinine. I'll just be honest with you. Some people say something like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Not all positions have to be respected, but all people need to be held sacred. And I think it's important to engage inaccuracy with truth as best as you understand it. What you heard from me today might not be empirical truth. It's my take on truth. And hopefully you hear me espousing it. I'm not saying this is the way or not. 
but what's happening a lot today is this emotional barrage of um, let's take it back to okay what does it mean for us to engage what the reality is and why and how do we move forward together maybe the takeaway is don't view people as your enemy as opposed to view people as a different perspective who give you a more clarifying holistic understanding of your own perspective if you're pursuing solutions as opposed to answers I hope you guys feel like it's okay for us to at least engage in this dialogue in this setting.